Africa rise and shine Africa zola Africa amka na unai Good morning and welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kilohertz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kilohertz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa. And I am Lulu Gabu in studio with Wisani Makubele, Wisani Matebula and Tami Kluza. Top stories in Africa Rise and Shine at this hour. Deposed Egyptian President Mohamed Morsi appears in court. SADC leaders meet in South Africa to discuss DRC crisis. And Kenyan government says it has no intention to gag the media. In economics, experts discuss safer ways of doing maritime business in Africa. And in sports news, Nigeria faced Sweden today in the Under-17 World Cup semi-final. But first the news with Wisani Makubele. Good morning. Sadek Chairperson and Malawi's President Joyce Banda has urged the government of DRC to consider returning to negotiations with the M23 rebels for the sake of peace in that country. She's added that military intervention alone is not enough. Banda was speaking at a joint SADC Great Lakes Region Summit in South Africa's capital, Pretoria, last night. The meeting has been called to discuss the ongoing fighting in the DRC. The meeting was also attended by presidents from both regions, including Namibia's Hifike Punye Bohambam, Robert Mugabe of Zimbabwe, and Yoweri Museveni of Uganda. Banda says the ongoing conflict has left scars on women and children. I wish to emphasize the fact that for us to achieve genuine peace and stability in the eastern part of the DRC, the conflicting parties should not only exercise maximum restraint, but also high levels of cooperation and tolerance in order to avoid any further escalation of the war. The women and children of DRC deserve peace and deserve better. Women are dying, they are being raped, children are being killed and maimed, Life cannot continue like this. I appeal for political will, deliberate choice of peace. At the same time, South African President Jacob Zuma says the ongoing political instability in the DRC and the Great Lakes region is making it difficult for the people in the region to benefit from the area's large reserves of mineral resources. Zuma was addressing delegates at the joint SADC Great Lakes Summit on the conflict in the DRC in South Africa's capital, Pretoria, last night. This summit should enjoin our two regions to continue to do everything we can to act together to respond to the urgent challenges of restoring peace and stability. Continued political instability in the Great Lakes denies the people of the region the ability to fully exploit their economic potential despite the region's large reserves of minerals and has resulted in untold human suffering. 
Nigeria's Islamic militant leader Abu Bakr Shekau has reportedly said in a new video that he commanded the October 23 battle in a provincial capital that killed at least 127 people. It was the first major attack on an urban center in Manz in Nigeria's northeastern Islamic uprising. The video obtained yesterday allegedly shows Shekau in military camouflage holding an AK-47 automatic rifle as well as hundreds of guns which he claims were captured in Damaturu, accuses the military of lying about its casualties in fighting during which militants set ablaze for police command posts and an army barracks. Nigeria's military says it killed 95 insurgents for the loss of 22 soldiers and 8 police officers. Chinese Ambassador Liu Jie has expressed concern at the current pace of negotiations in the convening in Geneva II Peace Conference on Syria. China holds the rotating presidency of the Security Council for the month of November. Ambassador Jie said in New York yesterday that things were not progressing as smoothly as wished. We would hope that um, efforts will be made with greater determination at the national regional and international levels so that uh, the relevant sides are persuaded to go to the negotiation table without preconditions and to really sit down and work out the political future of the country through negotiations, through dialogue. And this would be in the fundamental interest of the Syrian people, of the region, and also this will give us the best way forward. And finally, a Sudanese woman accused of indecent attire because she refused to cover her hair remains in legal limbo after a court appearance yesterday. Amira Osman Hamed faces a possible whipping if convicted of violating Sudan's laws governing morality, which took effect after the 1989 Islamist back coup by President Omar al-Bashir. The defense asked in September that the charge be withdrawn, but the prosecution is still weighing how to proceed. The court is waiting for the prosecutor to either send the file back to court for additional hearings or drop the case. No new date has been set for a further hearing, but one of her lawyers says this does not mean that the case is over. And that's the news for now. Africa Rise and Shine continues. Africa Rise and Shine. Africa Zola Africa Amuka na Unai Thank you, Wisani. It's 8.06 Central African time, and you're, you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine on Channel Africa Radio, based in Johannesburg, South Africa. In our top story at the Sawa, African leaders attending the joint summit of the SADC and Great Lakes Conference on the DRC conflict have commended the Congolese government forces and the intervention brigade comprising South African troops for recapturing the M23 strongholds and restoring government control. The brigade comprising of South African troops have carried out what is believed to be its first direct combat against M23 rebels since the Congolese army began a major assault against the rebellion last month. The rebels are now held up in the mountains bordering Uganda. Ndebo Mugobo has more. African solution to African problems and responding to this call, some African leaders including President Jacob Zuma, Zimbabwe's Robert Mugabe, Jakaya Kikwete of Tanzania, 
The DRC's Joseph Kabila and Yoweri Museveni of Uganda met in Pretoria last night to find solution to the long-running conflict in the DRC. After a marathon talk, leaders from the Sadak and the Great Lakes region were happy at the work done by South African troops and others from Malawi and Tanzania to bring peace to the Congo. Sadak Secretary Dr. Stego Menatex elaborates. The Joint Summit commended FADRC and the Intervention Brigade for recapturing M23 strongholds and restoring the government control. Joint Summit urged MONISCO and IB to maintain its enforcement mandate and the capability with regard to uprooting of all negative forces in the Eastern DRC. Joint Summit urged SADC and ICJRA member states to hand over negative forces to their countries of origin within the spirit of the UN framework for peace, security and cooperation for DRC in the region. An estimated 2.6 million people have been internally displaced, with almost 500,000 fleeing to neighboring countries during the two decades of war in the Congo. Renewed fighting between government forces and the M23 rebels was reported in the past 48 hours. President Zuma called for cessation of hostility. He said although the DRC and the Great Lakes region are endowed with large reserves of mineral resources, political instability in the region is making it difficult for people in the region to benefit from these mineral resources. This summit should enjoin our two regions to continue to do everything we can to act together to respond to the urgent challenges of restoring peace and stability. Continued political instability in the Great Lakes denies the people of the region the ability to fully exploit their economic potential despite the region's large reserves of minerals and has resulted in untold human suffering. Ugandan President Yoweri Museveni, who is also the chairperson of the International Conference on the Great Lakes, says part of the problem facing the DRC is that the Congolese government is harboring enemies of its neighboring countries. The Congo problem has comprised of the following elements. Harboring by design or default the enemies of neighboring countries, such as Uganda, Rwanda, Burundi, and Angola in the past. Having a Eurocentric foreign policy and completely ignoring the Great Lakes region under the belief that as long as European powers and the USA are supportive of what the government of Congo is doing, right or wrong, they did not have to bother with the region. Sadak Chairperson and Malawian President Joyce Banda, on the other hand, said to achieve peace in the DRC, conflicting parties in the Congo should have tolerance and work together for peace. I wish to emphasize the fact that for us to achieve genuine peace and stability in the eastern part of the DRC, the conflicting parties should not only exercise maximum restraint, but also high levels of cooperation and tolerance in order to avoid any further escalation of the war. The women and children of DRC deserve peace and deserve better. Women are dying, they are being raped, children are being killed, and maimed life cannot continue like this. I appeal for political will, deliberate choice of peace. The DRC is the only country with the biggest deployment of UN peacekeeping force members, with South Africa, Malawi and Tanzania contributing the 3,000-strong UN intervention brigade in the eastern DRC. These troops joined the 17,000 peacekeepers already deployed in the country. Ntebu Mokobo in Pretoria. Egypt's deposed President Mohamed Morsi, a 
appeared in court yesterday on the first day of his trial for incitement to murder. In his first public appearance since the military toppled him in July, Morsi was indignant and outraged in the makeshift courtroom at a police academy in East Cairo. For the latest from Egypt, our reporter Hedayal Abdel Nabi joined us earlier on the line from the capital, Cairo. The trial was, you know, uh, a very, uh, I mean, everybody was waiting to follow that trial. I mean, people were tuned, etc. Uh, of course, it was not televised, but people were trying to follow all satellite stations to know what's going on. Uh, well, uh, the trial started with the arrival of the former president dressed in a suit. Uh, he looked very calm. Uh, he entered uh, the trial from uh, a back door into the cage, and um, there uh, his, uh, his group, the 14 who are also accused, uh, started applauding his arrival, but they gave their back to the, to the audience in the trial, and he was the only one who went further and started, uh, you know, uh, greeting uh, the people in the, the trial room. Uh, he then uh, said that he was the legitimate president of Egypt several times and that down with the military rule. Uh, he refused to wear the suit of the defendant or the accused for provisional detention. Yes, I was and about to ask you that, Hedayal, that uh, we did hear earlier that uh, he actually refused to wear um, the prison uniform. Yeah, he was first in a suit, a normal suit. And the judge insisted that he wears the, the uniform of the retained and those who are in provisional detention. And he had to adjourn the session in order to convince the former president to wear the white suit. What sort of charges is he facing? And did he get a chance to plead yesterday? Well, the, the charges of this trial is inciting violence against demonstrators. Uh, in front of uh, the palace, the presidential palace last December, when, you know, huge groups of demonstrators were uh, really very vocal against his presidential, his constitutional decree that people viewed it as giving him absolute powers. And several were killed during those demonstrations. Did uh, Mohamed Morsi uh, plead yesterday? And if, what did he say exactly? No, he was. He did not recognize that trial. He, he, this is why he did not wear the white suit. This is why he uh, screamed at them or said that he's the, the, the legitimate president of Egypt. And he had no lawyer. So, in fact, this is all symptoms of an accused who does not uh, recognize the legitimacy of the trial. It was a very uh, procedural trial uh, yesterday. Um Earlier on, you touched on the fact that um, the trial was not aired on state television and people had to rely on satellite uh, stations to get their information of what ha- what is happening in the trial. Any particular reasons given for the trial not being aired um, uh, on the state television? Well, frankly, I don't know the logic of the people who took this decision uh, and there was no interpretation uh, released about it. Uh, but they... I think it was for the purpose of editing, but many of the uh, scenes that would have been seen anyway 
uh, if the trial was aired, were shown later on. I mean, the scene was chaos in the in the session, where everybody shouting at everybody, uh, almost uh, fighting the, with fists. They did not fight with fists, but it looked like a fist fight because the shouting and the yelling and and so on. Uh, when the, when the former president said, "I'm not the leg- I am the legitimate president of Egypt." Uh, I mean, all these things were known, so I don't see any uh, logical reason for not airing the trial. Now, what was the security like around the court precinct? Oh, yeah, the security was extremely, extremely tight, and there was a, a human sense of uh, security uh, officers and police, which shielded the academy from the demonstrators. And uh, no, no, it extremely tight. And Hedayal, uh, in terms of uh, his supporters, how did they react um, to yesterday's court appearance? Well, the supporters, of course, uh, uh, would have liked to storm the court itself, the session, but they were unable. So several uh, demonstrators took place in other states of Cairo. One of them was a huge demonstration at the Supreme Court which is adjacent to the military hospital where former President Mubarak is under house arrest. And there they stormed uh, the landing spot of helicopters and occupied it for some time. They blocked the passage on uh, the road completely. Uh, In the middle of Cairo, they um, put on fire tires and clashes took place between them and uh, security police. And in Alexandria, clashes took place between uh, demonstrators supporting uh, former President Morsi and uh, the people. And in one or two other governorates, there were demonstrations and clashes. Now, if uh, uh, Mohamed Morsi is found guilty, what sort of sentence is he likely to face? Well, there are other charges which are just of high treason. And uh, if he is guilty of or found guilty, but this remains to be seen, you know, and uh, we cannot speak about it now because it's a little bit early, mm. but uh, charges of high treason and treason is uh, execution. Hmm. Now, Hannah, my final question to you is, will the trial continue today? No, no, it has been postponed to the 8th of January. He is now in a prison uh, on the coast of Egypt in a place called Borgilara. That was our correspondent in Egypt, Hedayal Abdel Nabi, talking to us from the capital in Cairo. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. You're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. It's 8.19 Central African time and we're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. The importance of establishing effective security in countries recovering from conflict was discussed at a special event on security sector reform held at the United Nations headquarters on Monday. The event was co-organized by the missions of Slovakia and South Africa, the co-chairs of the Group of Friends of Security Sector Reform, as well 
as the Department of Peacekeeping Operations and the UN Development Program, UNDP. Participants considered the report of the UN Secretary-General on Security Sector Reform. Derek Mbata has more. Speaking on behalf of the President of the General Assembly, Ambassador Noel Sinclair of Guyana said the maintenance of peace and security is one of the founding principles of the United Nations Charter. In that same charter, member states are also committed to the promotion of social progress and of better standards of living. Experience has demonstrated with increasing clarity the essential interconnection between these two principles. The concept of security sector reform focuses basically on the role of national institutions in creating and maintaining the conditions necessary for giving effect to these principles. UN Deputy Secretary General Jan Eliasin said over the past five years, security sector reform has moved from what he called a little-known concept to a core element of peacekeeping, peacebuilding and development. The Security Council has increasingly tasked field missions with support to national security sector reform. The statistics speak very clearly this language. In 2008, the Security Council made a total of 14 references to security sector reform in its resolutions. By 2012, this figure jumped to 37. The UN Deputy Secretary-General spoke about the importance of security sector reform beyond the numbers it has been referred to in the Security Council. Beyond the numbers, security sector reform has become central to the work of the United Nations in reducing violence, addressing transnational organized crime, promoting human rights and contributing to overall stability. This is indeed welcome progress, but we have to match expectations and mandates with resources. Our work in the field and the SSR task force need full funding. The future of the United Nations in security sector reform rests on the vision and support of member states. Ambassador Kingsley Mamabulu of South Africa expressed a similar view, stressing the importance of national ownership of the process. In this regard, member states undertaking reform are therefore encouraged to take lead in defining their national vision of security sector reform informed by their own circumstances to ensure long-term sustainability of the reforms adequate national resources should be allocated including through legislation to the reform process ambassador mamabulu called on the peace building commission to continue to intensify its efforts to mobilize resources for security sector reforms he said this should include supporting national aid coordination and resource mobilization efforts by countries under its agenda derek imbata united nations Kenya's President Uhuru Kenyatta has asked the country's media fraternity not to panic following the passing in Parliament of a bill that suggests that journalists say could limit press freedom. His remarks come at a time when the African Editors Forum has described the bill as draconian and wants the Kenyan leader not to sign it into law. James Shimanyula reports from Nairobi. 
As international press organizations and the Kenya media houses condemn a bill passed in Kenya Parliament to create a government tribunal with the power to impose heavy fines on journalists working for the country's media houses, President Uhuru Kenyatta has asked them not to panic. Legally, the bill must reach him within two weeks for scrutiny before appending his signature on it to become law. Speaking in Kajiado County, west of the capital Nairobi, Kenyatta emphasized what freedom entails and said that Parliament, as the legislative arm of government, had done its duty but maintained that for any bill to be signed into law, it must conform to the Constitution. With freedom comes responsibility. And we must ensure that we take responsibility and give it as much importance as the freedom that we desire. The two go hand in hand. And it is important for all stakeholders to recognize that and to appreciate that. So as we do what we must do to ensure that all our laws conform to our constitution, we must also, and we do expect on the other side, that our friends in the fourth estate will also handle those freedoms responsibly. Kenyatta made it clear that his government had no intention of gagging the media, pointing out that he would look at the bill once it is forwarded to him with a view to identifying and addressing possible grey areas to ensure the new media law conforms to the constitution. Shortly after speaking in English, Kenyatta turned to Kiswahili. We are not gagging the media. When the bill reaches me, we shall all look at it. The harsh media bill includes fines of more than $10,000 for journalists who violate a code of journalistic conduct and penalties of $240,000 for their employers who violate press standards. Kenya journalists fear that if the bill is passed into law, it will silence the media as well as citizens who read newspapers, listen to radio, and watch television. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. The International Organization for Migration, IOM, is working to return approximately 40,000 South Sudanese nationals who have been stranded in transit camps in Sudan's capital, Khartoum, for nearly three years. IOM is appealing for $20 million to cover the cost of flights for these people who have been living in makeshift squalid conditions with no access to water and sanitation and decent shelter. South Sudan became an independent country in July 2011 and the returnees are among thousands of people who had been living in the north for years. UN Radio's Patrick Maigua in Geneva learns more about the situation of South Sudanese returnees from IOM spokesperson Jumbe Omari Jumbe. The 40,000 are those who are still stranded at the departure centers back in 2010 when these people heard that a then of provincial South Sudanese government would send uh, transport to them, so they got out of their houses, their workplaces, to wait for that kind of promise, which never materialized. They are stuck there until today, but generally there must be more than 40,000, the total number of South Sudanese nationals 
still in the Republic of Sudan. They have been in these transit camps for nearly three years. Is there hope that they are going to go to South Sudan anytime soon? We have been trying since then to solicit for funds to assist these people to return to South Sudan. It is a very, very expensive venture, this one, because most of them were even born in the Republic of Sudan, so they would like to take their possessions. So it is not an easy issue. So since then, we did not get enough money. Back in 2012, we succeeded in allocating a bit of money to transport only the most vulnerable persons. And I remember we transported around 300 or so by air, which means their luggage had to be left behind. So actually it is a very complex situation. The place they are living in is reported to be in very dire conditions. What kind of assistance are they being given in these makeshift camps where they are living? Well, apart from very minimal support of food from our partners, there isn't much really we can do and most of them rely on day work in the houses and petty trading. So their situation is really, really, really appalling. They couldn't really return to their former workplaces because they are told you are no longer a citizen of Sudan. So they are actually stateless at the moment. You've said you require about $20 million to transport them back home. Has there been any response to your appeal for funding? To the best of my knowledge until now, not yet. We have just issued an appeal and we are waiting for the donors to come to us. Of course, we fully understand that there are lots of crises around the world now. Probably it will take a couple of weeks or months, but we are certain that because these people's condition now have been put on the map, donors will come forward to rescue them from imminent danger. Previous transport of South Sudanese back to South Sudan, some of them went by road, others went by air. How do you intend to transport these 40,000 people? Ideally, we would like the border be open and then we can transport them by train as we did twice because in that way we would be able to take as many as possible but also to take their luggage with them. That is the ideal way, but at the moment the borders between the Republic of Sudan and South Sudan are still closed, so the only way now is by air. That was IOM spokesperson Jumbe Omari Jumbe talking to UN Radio's Patrick Maigua in Geneva. You're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. It's exactly 8.30 Central African time. And we now cross over to Wisani Makubele for our headlines for the morning. Thanks, Lulu. Good morning. South African President Jacob Zuma says the ongoing political instability in DRC and the Great Lakes region is making it difficult for the people in the region to benefit from the area's large reserves of mineral resources. Nigeria's Islamic militant leader Abu Bakr Sheikha has reportedly said in a new video that he commanded the October 23 battle in a provincial capital that killed at least 127 people. 
and China expresses concern at the current pace of negotiations in convening the Geneva II Peace Conference on Syria. That's the headlines for now. Africa Rise and Shine continues. Thank you, Isani. Malawi has launched the National Supplemental Immunization Activities to deal with measles and polio, which health experts say remain a challenge in the country. The campaigns come three years after Lilongwe conducted a nationwide measles vaccination exercise, but Malawi has managed successful immunization since 1998. This helped the nation reduce cases of measles and polio. Malawi government and World Health Organization have pumped in $2 million towards the initiative. George Mhango reports from Blantyre. The campaign is targeting close to 6 million children. Minister of Health Catherine Gotanihara says the government of Malawi has prioritized measles and polio considering that children are vulnerable to such diseases. This campaign for immunization is very, very important for the growth of every child. As you know, uh, measles polio and uh, worms can actually deter the growth of any child and in in other instances can actually kill a child. So what we are doing today is to ensure that we protect the lives of our under five children by ensuring that they get uh, the right immunization. Uh, Measles, polio, vitamin A and uh, for as well as for deworming the Measles used to be a major childhood public health problem until 1998, but the scenario has greatly improved due to the successful immunization campaigns conducted over the years by Lilongwe. But with this fresh immunization, health experts held the government saying this is the right path towards eliminating measles and polio diseases that affect the general good health of under five children. To some extent, the media has been involved in sensitizing the public about the need for parents to take their children to some of the vaccination centers. Thomas Kachere works for Midge Radio in the commercial capital, Blantyre. I should say that the government has done uh, quite a good job because uh, this is not the first time for us to have the stories in the media organizations uh, across the country. Uh, I think uh, these press releases were being placed in newspapers of different media organizations uh, for quite a long time, uh, I think about two weeks or so. So I think government has done uh, more uh, in making sure that people in rural villages, even in urban areas, have the access to know information and more about where to take their children and have this immunization uh, for polio and uh, measles. The public has also received news of the vaccination campaigns with great enthusiasm. This development is something nice because once children undertake the the whole measles thing, they would be free from these affections. So I think it's a nice development. My advice to all parents out there is to tell them not to hesitate into taking their children to undergo this treatment because if they do this, they wouldn't have to worry about their child suffering from measles. This is a very welcome development, considering uh, the impact that uh, these diseases have in our country and also in attacking under five children. As a father, I welcome wholly uh, the initiative by government. 
and um, we're looking forward indeed to taking our, ch our, our children to the vaccination. You know, the saying is prevention is better than cure. It is better to prevent these diseases in good time, more especially under uh, five children, and like maybe waiting for the waste to happen to control everything. But rather, this is a very good development, and um, I promise that um, I've already taken my child indeed to, for the campaign of the immunization uh, of polio and measles. For her, similar campaigns in the past have seen Malawi securing a prestigious place among a few countries in the measles elimination phase. Besides attaining the polio-free status by the African Region Certification Commission (ARCC) in 2005, she alludes that from January 2008 to date, only 19 cases have been confirmed measles positive. As we stand, we have not had any polio cases, I think, since 1998. What we would like to do is to ensure that that stays as it is. So for us to maintain that performance is for us to continue doing uh, vaccinations because it is possible to have a neighboring country which can be affected or maybe not a neighboring country but because nowadays we are called a global village we have people traveling to so many other countries that have uh, polio as a problem so what we are doing as a country as much as we don't have cases of polio is to ensure that every year we still immunize our children against uh, polio because that is a perfect way of ensuring that we don't get polio recurring. The World Health Organization representative, Felicitas Zawaira, has since observed that no economic and social development can take place where immunization is lagging behind. The measles and polio campaign, which started on Saturday, November 3rd, runs up to November 6, 2013, aiming to capture children born after the previous campaign and those that missed out during routine immunization services and those with primary vaccine failure and pockets of hard-to-reach areas. George Mohango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. A bishop in South Africa's KwaZulu-Natal province has angered many with his assertion that he can cure HIV and AIDS. Dr. Hamilton Nala from the Rebirth Family Center in Durban claims that God is using him to cure AIDS. He says he is able to change a positive HIV test to a negative test, and he says he has proof. It's a claim that has angered government, with some officials calling for his arrest. His church has about 25,000 congregants. Vusi Kumalo reports. Since the emergence of the groundbreaking claims about treatment of HIV-AIDS, Dr. S.Q. Nala's offices and churches have been inundated by thousands of people. They are in need of a miracle water prayed for by Dr. Nala. They all want to be healed of their various diseases, including life-threatening ones, such as HIV, AIDS and cancer. My son has been epileptic and whenever he walks, he will just fall down and get hurt. 
but since he was prayed for by Dr. Nala and using faith water, he has been healed. I've been using this walking stick for too long. The pastor has just prayed for me, and I feel okay now. And I don't think I will be using this stick ever again. KwaZulu-Natal Health MEC Dr. Sbongseni Lomo has been angered by the bishop's claims. He says the bishop is deliberately misleading poor people. Speaking on Ukozi FM's current affairs program, Lomo said he's taking the matter to the national level as there is no known scientifically proven therapy for HIV to date. People must stop speaking irresponsible. And this doctor is misleading the public because he has got no proof that he can cure AIDS. I challenge anyone who claims to cure people of AIDS to come forward with scientific proof so that this can go through clinical trials. However, Dr. Nala hits back at government. Dr. SQ, as is affectionately known, has cursed government for refusing him to come with an alternative treatment to HIV-AIDS. He has asked government officials to take stock of many testimonies of patients who have been healed of their illnesses. I have encouraged people to believe God, although they don't have a cure for AIDS. But through the power of God that is invisible, that there is no laboratory can test this. But we know through the results that there are people who have been healed from AIDS. Because we have certificates of the people who have been tested before, HIV positive. Now they have tested by the same government who attacked me that they are HIV negative. The Center for the AIDS Program of Research in South Africa Caprisa has strongly condemned the use of such faith water. Caprisa's Cochlear Naidu is based at Deppens Mandela School of Medicine. My word to the population out there that are going in their numbers to try this, people are desperate. They want a cure. And um, before they invest their time and money into uh, alternate therapies, find out more about it and ask the questions. What is known about this therapy? Has it been demonstrated to work? From a factual perspective, there is no known cure for HIV. The holy water comes in 500 milliliter and 1 liter bottles and is sold for 15 and 30 rand respectively. The label carries messages such as prayed for by Dr. Nala, prophets mightily used by God in healing, Vuskumalo, Pinetown. You're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. It's 8.41 Central African time and we're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Equatorial Guinea has become one of the richest countries in Africa since the discovery of oil and natural gas reserves in the 1990s, yet the majority of its people remain poor. A tiny West African country once one of the world's poorest countries, is now attracting both skilled and unskilled labor from Africa, Latin America and Europe. Our Yaounde correspondent Moki Kinzega visited Equatorial Guinea and sent us this report. A Punta Europa, nous accordons la plus haute priorité à votre sécurité. These are the words that welcome visitors to the imposing Ponte Europa gas plant that lies overhead Malabo, the capital of Equatorial Guinea. In 2010, barely three years after it was constructed, 
the government of Equatorial Guinea announced that it had a capacity of 4.5 trillion cubic feet. The reserve and other huge quantities of petroleum resources discovered as from 1996 propelled the country to occupy the position of third largest oil producer in sub-Saharan Africa. Cameroonian-born gas exploration engineer Esono Jean returned from France after his training to work in Malabo. It is the biggest gas factory in the world and you can only compare it with those in America. So Africa is improving in one of its aspects. It is a new Africa and I think that it is a good example for the other African and world leaders to emulate. Equatorial Guinea since then has been attracting both skilled and unskilled labor from far and near. The 40-year-old Apeto Mesong from Benin has set up an ICT center in Malabo and installs surveillance equipment for companies. It is a very great opportunity for the citizens of this country if they can use the riches. I think that they will be a very great example for other countries in Africa. The country has been transformed into a huge construction site, attracting workers not only from Africa, but also Latin America and Europe. Mike's Olivader came from Brazil to work as bridge construction engineer. They are investing a lot in the infrastructure, the roads, the builders, uh, developing the agriculture, health. So there's a lot of things there here, not just the builders. The people of Equatorial Guinea traditionally refuse granting interviews. It has always been the tradition since President Obiang Gemba Basogo took over power 33 years ago. Mairano Esonmo Ngema, who is the traditional ruler of Ngametsok near Bata, the economic capital of the country, however told me that they were witnessing a revolution in their country. He says Equatorial Guinea was unknown, but today you can see the work that the head of state is doing. He adds that they have roads and there is water. Electricity and Chinese are carrying out huge construction works because the president has said that between now and 2020, everybody must have access to basic necessities. That report by Muki Kinzaga. Wisani Matebula? There is talk of China warning South Africa on the demand of steel and cement. Yes. What uh, exactly is going on there? What is going on is uh, China is, is warning South African uh, businesses which are in the steel and cement sector to say mm-hmm. that, guys, there is no demand in those industries now. The supply is too much. The market is oversupplied. So you shouldn't expand as you, you're trying to expand right now, but you should just you know uh, make it uh, a little bit uh, lower so that you, the, the demand and supply you know, balance can be, can be in an equilibrium. Okay, so are they basically saying that the, the market, the, the, the industry is oversaturated? The, the, yeah, it's oversaturated because since um, y- you remember when uh, 2010 uh, World Soccer Cup. World Cup yes. came in, you know, you know that's when it, it hit 
the ceiling. That's mm-hmm. when it, uh, it skyrocketed. There mm-hmm. was so much demand for cement. There was lots of building infrastructures, mm-hmm. roads and all of that. Mm-hmm. So, but now it's, it's reaching a point where it's not going any further. Okay. So hence the warning has come from, uh, from China's as leaders of business to warn South African industries that uh, they will do better to cap the expansion for now. Maybe in uh, three or four years to come or five years, the Things cycle, it usually goes in a cycle, the, mm-hmm. the cycle of supply and demand. Mm-hmm. So now it's, it's at the bottom. It might come up and bottom up again and even uh, reach the, the highest uh, points which it reached in 2010. Okay, great. Can you give us the rest of the details of your economics update? CEO of Kenya Airways, Titus Naikuni, says it's pointless to acquire more aircraft from Boeing Corporation unless the U.S. government allows its airline to begin direct flights to the country. Four years ago, Delta Airlines postponed indefinitely a plan to start direct flights between Atlanta and Jomo Kenyatta International Airport. And their track impunity always, which is uh, called trial also, has submitted a criminal denunciation against the precious metal refinery. Agro Harris SA to the Swiss Federal Prosecutor, the Swiss Anti-Impunity NGO, holds information suggesting that the South African company may have laundered pillaged gold in the DRC. And the Port Management Association of East Africa says piracy around the east coast of Africa has been brought under control, resulting in free operations of the vessels in the region. Nunkululeko Shope reports. Exploring ways to promote trade among African states, Pemiesa says piracy had had a negative impact on trade on the east coast of Africa. It says the shipping industry was nearly wiped out, but the intervention by international navies saved the day. China's leaders have warned South African officials to stop expanding industries such as steel and cement in which supply outstrips demand. Beijing has been trying to cut back unneeded production capacity since 2009, which has triggered price-cutting wars that threaten the financial health of some South African industries. But lower-level Chinese leaders whose promotions depend on economic development have continued to support South African industries. And the good news for South African motorists is that the price of petrol will go down by 28 uh, South African cents tonight at midnight. The energy department says the retail price of all grades of diesel will decrease by 15 and 17 cents per liter. Morafe Tabane reports. The drop in fuel prices should provide some respite for South Africans who are drowning in debt. This is the third consecutive month of a decrease in the retail prices of petrol and diesel this year. Economists say the rent strength on an average basis during the course of October helped bring the prices down. Contributing towards the strengthening of the local unit was the decision in mid-September by the U.S. Federal Open Market Committee not to proceed as yet with a tapering off of quantitative easing. Consequently, the flow of liquidity into emerging market assets continued. 
Financial indicators, the dollar still at 10.15, South African rands at 8.5, Botswana pulas and 5.48, Zambian quaches also trading at 0.62, British pound and 0.74 to the euro. Commodities, gold $1,317, platinum $1,454 a fine ounce, Brent crude oil going down $105.24 per barrel. And that's how it's looking. Thank you, Isani. Tammy Kuzar standing by with our sports update. Thanks for joining us. Let's start with Sokam. Golden Eagles have promised Nigerians as goal feast in today's FIFA Under-17 World Cup semi-final match with Sweden at the Rashid Stadium in Dubai. Eagles have scored 20 goals in five matches, the most by any team in the tournament holding in the United Arab Emirates, as they geared up for another match with the Swedes, who they held to a 3 all thrilling draw at the Khalifa Pinzaid Stadium in Al-Alain. The Nigerians, who could only manage to score twice in Saturday's quarter-final win against Uruguay, say that goals will come a plenty against the Scandinavians. Golden Eagles head coach Manu Gaba says that playing Sweden in the semi-final today will be a dream come true. Chipolo Polo captain Christopher Katonga has been ruled out of Zambia's friendly against Jordan and the friendly match has been shifted from Amman to the Gulf state of Qatar tomorrow. Katonga has pulled out of the trip to sort out a constant a contractual matter in China following the recent expiry of his contract at promoted Chinese club Henan Jianyim. Katongo is however expected to be available for Zambia's next friendly against Egypt on November the 14th in Cairo. And Katongo was one of the four foreign best players called up for the November 6th friendly in Doha. Midfielder Noah Chivuta from the ATP Mazembe and ATP Mazembe defender Kabaso Chongo are in the squad that has been called by a coach. Back home, South Africa's Bafana Bafana coach Gordon Igesante has announced a strong 24-man squad to face Swaziland in an international friendly match that will be played on the 15th of November at the National Stadium in the Swazi capital of Mbabane. Surprisingly, he chose 15 players from Orlando Pirates. Igesante says he's rewarding the players for their good run in the, champion, in the Champions League, hence he chose nine players from Orlando Pirates. As an association, we decided that we weren't going to consider the London Pirates players because they needed to focus and concentrate on the African uh, Champions League, which I'm happy, happy to say they've done fantastically well, you know. And now it's a great opportunity because if you look at all of the nine players that I've selected from the London Pirates, tell me one of them that doesn't deserve to be there. They all deserve to be there. Mamutsa, for example, for me at the moment, is probably the most outstanding player in the country. Igesan says he is sticking to his word by rewarding players who are in form. And on Thursday, the Coltrane announced another squad for international friendly against Spain at the FNB Stadium. The match between the two countries will be played on Tuesday, the 19th of this month, which is also a FIFA date. He says that the squad manager, Pani Kujani, is doing an excellent job and will make sure that all players are available for the match against Spain. 
To be honest with you, that I've got a team manager like Barney Kajani, who's absolutely world class. So I sit down, we have our meetings. I tell him what I would like to do, how I would like to have it, how I would like the players, when I would like the players, and then I don't worry about that after that because I know it's going to be sorted out. I've never been let down at any time. So he knows that I have to have a squad going to Swaziland. When I get back from Swaziland, when I walk into the hotel. I want to see the overseas-based players, and the other players will be remaining with me, so we can start immediately. I'm just very fortunate to have Barney that makes sure that I don't have any problems that department. In our rugby, South African Springbok rugby head coach Hanneke Meyer has given the first indication that the coming tour of Wales, Scotland, and France may see him depart from what most critics appear to be expecting him to, which is to stick to the policy of playing the best team in every test. And according to Meyer, this tour is not about winning every match. Although naturally the box will be playing to win, but about throwing different players into the mix to see if they will sink or win in the conditions that the box will encounter at the World Cup two years from now. Here is Springbok coach Heineke Meyer. The world is an unbelievable team. They've been together for quite some time now. They've shown they can, they can beat the best. And um, you know, they've got a simple game plan, but they executed very, very well. Very balanced side. Um, you know, big backs, big forwards, great defence, rushing defence, and uh, they can score tries as well. So... Uh, we see this as a very, very big game for us, a huge challenge, and um, they're probably the informed team at the moment. And finally, in tennis, Argentina's Juan Martin Del Potro put behind him the trauma of having some of his prizes possession stolen to post a winning start at the Barclays ATP World Tour Finals. The former US Open champion, who is in the same group as Novak Djokovic and Roger Federer, came back from a set down to beat Richard Gasquet 7-5-7-5 in the third round. Del Potro says he is happy to have beaten one of the toughest opponents in the tournament. In the beginning of the match, I, I couldn't be positive. Uh, I was frustrating. For the days before I came here, I was thinking too many things. I'm not uh, play, playing my game. But then the atmosphere down there was incredible, and that helped me to, to enjoy a little bit the match. And I play good points, and finally I can beat uh, one of the tougher opponents on my group. That's the end of our sport. Stay tuned to Channel Africa and back to Lulu Gabo. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorna. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at this hour, deposed Egyptian President Mohamed Morsi appears in court, SADC leaders meet in South Africa to discuss DRC crisis, and Kenyan government says it has no intention to gag the media. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. From myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumuto Ramagaza, technical producer Mario Edwards, and the rest of the team, Thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at infochannelafrica.org or send us an SMS to plus 2782-332-5905. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news is Fali Ipupa with Atenelente.